This New America NYC event took place on September 27, 2017, and is titled "The End of Loyalty: The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America." This event features Rick Wardsman, Ijen Poo, Jessica Lin, and Kristen Sharp.
work, both physically in an office and the way that we conceptualize a job. And so one of the things that I think is helpful to highlight just as background before we go into the discussion is sort of what do you think of was the quintessential definition of a good job in, say, the height of um, the, the sort of social contract that you looked at in the book versus what is a good job now? Yeah, I don't know if the definition, you know, the basic definition, I don't think has, has changed a whole lot. I mean, the contours have, have changed because of technology. In some ways, uh, for people who have knowledge and skills, I actually think jobs are better today than they were in a, in a period where a lot of big companies, if you were for big companies anyway, they tended to be kind of paternalistic and there was a lot of hierarchy and bureaucracy. Um, unless you were way at the tip top of the organization, your ideas weren't valued very much. So again, if you're fortunate enough to have education and skills and work in the right kind of environment, there's a lot of teamwork and collaboration. And you know, I think more places are really meritocracies than, than you know, for all the Dilbert cartoons that are real. Uh, I think there are a lot of, of employers that have improved those practices, including at the companies that I, that I write about. Um, they're definitely, you know, if, if not just islands of excellence, in many ways excellence in those ways. Um, but the definition of a good job of, you know, one that gives you a sense of purpose and, and, and fulfillment in, in what you do every day, um, that, that, you know, gives you some pride and, and dignity in what you do, um, and that provides a, a you know, a, a way to live decently and to have a measure of security and ultimately a, a measure of security, you know, if something goes wrong in your life in terms of, of health situation and, uh, and that you can retire. Uh, in a secure way with dignity. I don't think any of that stuff has has changed. And I, I think that you know the big change is that um, and I sort of alluded to this in the first part, you know, before so there's two important things to say. First of all, before this sort of golden age when again a huge swath of the American workforce did see its wages uh, go up, you know, 75% in real terms from sort of the late 40s to the early 70s. Compensation was plus percent over that period if you include wages and benefits. You know, over the last 30 years, it's been about a 10% rise in compensation. So, I mean, it's really, it, it, again, we're nowhere close, but that golden age came with an asterisk. So, um, women and people of color were largely excluded. This was a golden age for white men. Um, and in many ways, uh, you know, women and people of color still, it's, the workplace can be a very inhospitable place. And so uh, there's still a lot wrong, but, but we've certainly moved from the worst of it um, in, in that era, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the other real kind of big force is that you could, in those days, walk into a factory you all know this, and you with very little education, less than a high school degree even. Um, it was really hard work, but you could find a path to the middle class economically. And those jobs are just, you know, they really don't exist. I mean, uh, factories have far fewer people in them by and large. Uh, factory employment is much smaller, uh, largely because of technology and automation over time. But even if you go in there, you need some kind of technical skills and often a, some kind of technical certificate. Um, and, you know, the problem, as I see it, or one of the major problems is that fewer than half of adults in this country have any kind of post-secondary degree at all, not a four-year degree, not a two-year degree, not any kind of work relevant, you know, technical certificate. And those are people who are being left behind as we've shifted from a blue-collar economy to a knowledge economy. Um, and we've done a terrible job as a society of, um, you know, giving those people access to um, the skills that they that they need. Um, and at the same time, we haven't done a lot to take jobs um, that, uh, and, and I'm sure Dijon will talk a lot more about this. You know, it's not that training is the answer to everything. We also need to do a lot to take jobs that are not very good jobs and turn them into good jobs because there's a lot of work being done. Um, that we should be valuing a lot more. So I don't want to make it seem like education is the only thing, but I think it's a big thing. So that's a great question and a great way to bring Aijin in. You, Aijin, you work so much with a population of workers that are independent and don't lend themselves to sort of 
corporate paths to advancement. You care workers, elder care workers, healthcare workers, domestic workers, people who work one on one with one employer to one person. What does what does sort of advancement look like? And and can you talk a little bit about sort of what the similarities and differences are in terms of a historic corporate approach to advancement and what we're seeing today? Mm. Um, well, it's really, it's really interesting, though, different entry points into the same challenges. Um, I work with a workforce that goes to work every day in homes as nannies, house cleaners, caregivers for the aging, people who support people with disabilities. Um, we call it the work that makes all of the work possible. And, uh, and it is this work that um, I've been organizing with domestic workers and home care workers for 20 years now, and for most of the early years, it was um, very much seen as on the margins of the economy and kind of in the shadows, right? And um, at a certain point, I kind of looked around and I realized that the conditions that define domestic work and care work, long hours, very low wages, unpredictable schedules, um, no job security at all, no access to benefits or health care, um, no training or career pathways, like those conditions that define domestic work, which is very much seen as like shadow margins, right? I started to look around and realize that it was those very conditions were becoming defining of more and more of the workforce. Yeah. And that um, suddenly, like, everyone was becoming a domestic worker <laughs> um, in a way. And, and we often talk about it as the domestic workers were the original gig economy workers because that wild west of unpredictability and instability and, yes, flexibility, but also all the other things, right, um, is um, very much what domestic workers have been experiencing for many, many years. Um, and so when we think about the future of work, um, we often think about kind of what it has taken to try to raise standards and make the jobs better jobs in our sector and what can we learn and apply um, in really shaping the future of gig economy work or the future of work generally. And I think that education is certainly a piece of it. And I want to recognize right here in the front row, a second row, Debbie King, who built um, the t most of the top home care training centers in the country, including here at, um, in New York at 1199. Um, there is a way to actually train and prepare this workforce and have this workforce be part of the solution for the future, right? A part of a healthcare career ladder, a part of how we're gonna address the huge and growing elder care needs for this country, and a part of how we ultimately make sure that our aging loved ones have a better quality of life, have more care options, right? And actually save the healthcare system money because there's so much waste in the healthcare system related to poor, and care towards the end of life. So I see it as an opportunity to say, how can we invest in jobs that have been undervalued for a very, very long time, that we know are not outsourceable, that you know probably we won't have a robot caring for grandma right away, right? We definitely need technology and innovation and robotics in caregiving. Have, have any of you ever seen a Hoyer lift, for example? <laughs> these are lifts that home care workers use to move a person from a bed to a chair. And these things are like, I mean, you, they look like they were built by you know, a second grader. Like they're just really <laughs> arcane technology. So there's totally a role for technology in improving the quality of work. And I guess I feel like it's a choice. Or why do we need to necessarily displace work? Why can't we enhance? the quality of work and have people who are doing really important in-person in service work actually have a better experience doing that work. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of moral and ethical choices before us um, and choices that employers have to make. Like This is a moment for moral courage on the part of employers to say we have a responsibility to the working people of this country and we haven't been meeting it, and we've got to turn it around. And once we do that, I think the opportunities are endless. 
So Jessica, as an investor and as somebody who thinks carefully about what the forthcoming trends are in the future of work, what's your take on the ways that we can use technology to make work better for for that we use technology to make work better for people at all income levels and all types of jobs, those that are that are care-based and those that are sort of human-to-human contact and those that are tech-forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I can share a little bit about my unique perspective. So one, of course, as a VC, we are investing in companies in AI and automation. I can give a few examples of some of them a little bit. I love what you said about the human-centered approach, though, and that's a very you know big part of our investing philosophy here. It's not that robots are going to come tomorrow or in five years, um, but until then, what can we do, right? Um, the flip side of that is outside of WorkBench, I've been um, a GED educator now for almost 10 years. So to your point about the 1199 at CIU, I teach um, adult students there um, who are looking to go to college, right, who are home care aid. So I see that group of students who are the hardest working people, I mean, so many of you know these people, right, who work so, so hard day in and day out um, trying to get ahead. Right. Um, I also advise the Board of Community College on a number of workforce development initiatives. Um, and I hear every day our startups um, say to me, oh, I can't hire, I, don't, I can't find someone to hire for this role, right? And I hear my students who are clearly so hungry for these opportunities. So there's, there's obviously skills in the mismatch which we can talk more about. Um, I do think there is no right answer, no quick, quick and easy answer, right, as you articulated in your book, but I do think it needs to be technology enabled. Um, and so, I, I, again, I can give a number of examples. Um, I think for me, the perspective that I see is, um, is that it's not, that, that pace of change is, is happening really quickly, right? And that's just the, the fact of the matter, and that technology will be able to do a lot of these redundant tasks that many of the people that you work with are, are currently doing, maybe in the more the, the kind of knowledge economy office work. But on the flip side, education, I don't think is, keeping up and being agile enough, mm-hmm. right? And I think we saw a lot of short-term solutions like boot camps, right, that were meant to solve that. Um, and I think some of you might have seen in the New York Times, there's also been some debate now around boot camps. So um, the one thing I will say to your point earlier, right, is that there are companies that who are truly still providing a whole vast wealth of benefits, and it's Facebook and Google. Right, and you see all the perks and benefits that they offer between dry cleaning and fertility benefits and so forth. So, um, you know, I do think that's still uh, that's still possible and that's still the promise. But to your point, what it takes to get to those very competitive goals. Right. So, right. I mean, that's a great example, right? Which is that. So, if you are lucky enough to be a you know software engineer or data scientist and you work at Google or Facebook, it's awesome. You know, those are those are great jobs. And again, I think that speaks to the premium that often really in-demand knowledge workers can get in this economy. You know, for all the sort of, you know, uh, concern, rightfully, about college debt and about, and even some numbers now that, you know, how much of a return do you get on an co- investment in college? You know, you look over a person's life, it's still a really good investment to, to go to college if you can if you can do it. And and economically, that, that returns. But if, and, and so those are great jobs. But you know the other side of Silicon Valley, as you all know so well, are you know largely contracted out. So there are people who uh, may have, in a different time of, of the life of corporate America, would have been corporate employees, right? There was the story in the New York Times that Neil Irwin did a week or so ago about the two right janitors, the one who used to work at Kodak and uh, one now at Apple, and you know, and he really hit on an important larger phenomenon. So the you know the Googles the Facebooks, the, you know, the whole valley, great jobs at the top. The rest are all contracted out or they're temp jobs. And those people, I mean, I've looked at the numbers, you know, so this is the maintenance people and the shuttle bus drivers and the security guards and the cafeteria workers. They're mostly uh, African-American and Latino. They make twenty to $25,000 a year and they have no benefits. So it's again, we, we've, we're creating these kind of parallel universes, I think. But 
I think that one of the interesting points about the parallel universes is that we, most of us still conceptualize the ability to advance and the ability to sort of train in place in a job as a corporate function. Mm -hmm. And right now we have an economy in which many of the emerging jobs are independently motivated, on demand, contingent jobs in some way. You know, somewhere between 25% and one third of our economy works in that way. And you can argue about whether or not that's good in terms of flexibility and autonomy for your schedule or, or whether it's sort of undercuts people's stability and ability to plan for the future in their income. But the reality is that that's, that's the case in our economy right now. So what kinds of things can we do to recreate the sense of stability, maybe outside the corporate role, that then to sort of modernize our approach to those kinds of to jobs, you know, what what what's your thought of you know we have this cadre of companies that got together in the 1940s and said you know we're going to do X Y and Z thing. What should either individual employers or guilds or outside groups or things be thinking about now in order to recreate the sense of stability in a different way? Yeah, I mean for you know everyone should type in. I mean might you look you know there's the guild model is an interesting one. Um, uh, you know, I, I think from the, from the corporate standpoint, and also, I mean, you know the numbers better, but that, like, the 30%, right, includes people who, um, you know, are W-2 regular employees, but also also work at least once a week, right, with getting some kind of 1099 income on the side. Right. So the pure 1099 workers are what, that's quite... Somewhere between 1 and 3%. Yeah, so it's not, so it's not that big. So I just wanted you all to have that perspective. So it's super fast growing, but it's but it's not the dominant portion of, of, of the workforce. workforce is a workforce that right. whose job is not permanent, defined, and right. with a set role and yeah. responsibility and hours. Right. So, and it can be anyone from a Starbucks employee to somebody who drives for Uber. Right. Yeah. And that and that might be all in with temp workers and everything like what fifteen percent or so of the of the workforce. So it's important, it's fast growing, but I just again it's not the dominant part of it, at least not yet. And so I think really about I largely think about the other eighty-five percent and I think what I just said is right on that there there's a measure of morality and courage that some companies definitely take. I mean there are high road employers that invest in their workers. Most companies have stopped investing in their workers in, in terms of compensation based on the numbers I told you earlier. We know that, it's a fact. And in terms of training. So Peter Capelli from Wharton, I think, is one of the best in terms of just the, the numbers across the economy on this. And he would tell you that, you know, even as late as the late 70s, you know, a young employee, typical young employee that a big American company would get something like two and a half weeks of skilled training a year. By the mid-90s, that was down to 11 hours a year on average. And today, if you look at most of the surveying, most people haven't had any skills training, not like HR compliance stuff, but real skills training for the past five years. So, you know, companies have stopped investing. They always say, every executive you talk to will say, oh, my people are my most important asset. Um, very few behave like people are their most important asset. They're not. Are not investing in them, and and so, and last thing I'll say is this is a this is really the major through line of my book. The big shift, all kinds of forces: globalization, automation, decline of unions, shift to knowledge work from blue collar work. But there has been a kind of change in corporate culture to uh, think mostly in terms of maximizing shareholder value and very explicitly putting investors over workers. Um, there are great exceptions to this, but that is really the corporate ethos and the way corporate culture has changed. And once you do that, you stop investing in workers, they start to look like an expense, not like something you invest in. And there's a big reason that training has gone down, and that, that needs to change. So, Jessica, any commonalities in the companies that do take the law around? Like, what, what either incentivizes a company to do that or a founder to do that from the get-go or gets them over that line partway through their development? Yeah, so two points. One is I prior to on Workbench, I used to be in corporate L&D at Cisco. So learning development, I was in the internal training role. And we were talking earlier, I actually think Cisco is still investing quite a lot in both their executives but also um, individual contributors. That said, I think that, um, quite frankly, the tenure by which 
employees are sticking around with companies, it's just shorter and shorter now, right? And it's this portfolio career that most people tend to have. Um, so at least competitive talent tends to have. So people will stay two years. And I've heard at Silicon Valley, it's like 14 months, right? That before someone gets poached and goes on to some other startup. So when you're an employer, you think, well, why am I gonna invest this much time in one person if they're just gonna go to my competitor next door? Is the, is the thinking. Um, what I will say on the flip side in terms of the startups that we're investing in that I feel really hopeful about, you know, one is this company called Upskill. Um, and what they're doing is they're building the software layer for Google Glass, right? And they're selling it to Boeing and GE on the manufacturing plant floor line. Um, and I didn't realize this until recently, but these um, assembly people literally are still using 300-page paper spec books to assemble pieces, right? So they'll assemble a piece, turn a page, assemble another piece. And these are really, really complex um, parts. And so this Google layer obviously just overlays the instructions as to how to go about assembling, right? Production rates have gone through the roof, error rates have gone down, and just if you think about the, you know, the repetitive stress from your head, you know, eight hours a day, right? So this is a very obviously, I think, ideal example, right? Um, where I do think technology can enable this. I think AR, VR is still very early, but if you think about all the people who do not have access to internships, Right, that I would characterize for so many of our students as the biggest stumbling block, right? Because you're not getting access, and you're not getting exposure, and you're not getting a foot through the door. If you can have people, if you can democratize that experience by virtualizing it, right? I just, there's so many applications. I think my biggest, you know, um, commitment I think to VC is if we can take even a fraction of what we invest in fashion and dog food startups <laughs> and invest it in training and workforce development, then you know we will have done our part at Workbench. The last thing I will say is I think most people don't call whatever they're building nowadays training, which is interesting. I can share more about that. I think there's actually sometimes a negative connotation around that, um, which is really nuanced. Um, but I do think that if we are to invest more, then we can hit scale, right? Which is the biggest challenge I see even with my work at 11 it's just pure scale. It's just such a big problem. How do we reach more people more effectively? So do you see it then, just about really follow up for any of you, do you, is it a, an individually driven decision by a founder or company head that decides to invest in the workforce? Or is it outside pressure from someone, some group, and if so, what? I think it's both. I think we need a movement for good jobs and good work that includes employers and working people and VCs and everybody saying that we are in a moment with all kinds of tech transformation, tech-driven transformation in our economy. It's an opportunity to do a reset and recommit to quality jobs for working people in this country, and we're going to work together to make it happen. Um, but I don't think it's it's any one group. I think it has to be an all hands on deck situation. And there's a role for government. There's a role for philanthropy. But definitely, working people and employers need to be talking about how we create good jobs for the future. I mean, it's a it's a the defining issue of our time. I think. Do you have any good examples of your work? I just need something hopeful. Um, well, lots of hopeful things. I mean, um, we are working on um, investing in the care economy so that people can afford care and we can make care jobs good jobs. Um, we had a big victory in Hawaii this year where um, the governor just signed a bill to create the first ever caregiver, working family caregiver support program where basically if you're working and you have an elderly parent that you're caring for at home, you can apply for a benefit of up to $70 a day to help you pay for respite care or a home care provider to come and take your loved one to the hospital. And you've been able to establish the wage levels for the home care providers who work through the program so that they're being paid a living wage. And we're investing in a system that supports working families as it supports the workforce. Um, and it's the first of its kind in the country, so I think that that is very promising. Um, we also have been working with a, a group of about 12 companies who launched something with us a year ago called the Good Work Code. These are tech, com tech companies 
Um, and we've been essentially trying to spawn this movement for good work um, and doing it in tech. In tech feels really, there's a lot of energy, a lot of change happening, huge cultural impact that tech has on, on the world right now. And if we can get um, young leaders and startups to actually embed good work values in their DNA from the beginning, um, it's actually, it could be huge, right? It's a big part of the movement. So um, the Good Work Code has eight principles uh, for what it looks like to support good work on your in your company, on your platform. And it was developed by workers who actually work for Uber and Lyft and Handy and all the others. Um, and we think it's a framework that we can popularize throughout tech, the tech economy and maybe even beyond. It's one kind of, it's like an MVP, but I think we actually need a whole movement and many more efforts like it. Yeah. yeah. I, I would just say, you know, from my point of view, I, I think it is a, a very much a both end, you know, sort of thinking more about as the old guy, the older traditional companies. So, uh, you know, the government has a huge role to play. Um, one is just in funding. So, uh, you know, a lot more funding in whatever you call training now. You have to tell me how to Kipper use the right yeah. term of art, but um, you know. So you know, the current administration, for example, has talked a lot about apprenticeships and that being really important. And I think that is really important, um, and it's great that they're talking about it. But then you actually look at the budget they propose, and the numbers are basically you know flat from where they have been. So you can talk about having 10 times the number of apprenticeships, but if you're not funding you know, that, then that's not gonna happen. And then if at the same time, you're cutting other labor department training programs by up to 40%, you know, that's not a, a good direction and, and the rhetoric doesn't match the reality. So funding is important. I think on the public side that there are, our incentives are, are off and, and, and there's some things we can do to fix them. So, you know, easy one to think about is if you're if you're a company and you uh, you know open up a new big new factory, you buy a really you know big piece of equipment, you count that on your balance sheet as an asset, right? And so it's because it's seen as it's going to create value, and it's and it has it has value to you as an asset on your balance sheet. You can go to the bank, you can borrow against it. It's a it's a positive. If you start a big worker training initiative, you know how's that? That's, that's just an expense on your income statement. It's just a cost. You know, we don't treat it from an accounting standpoint or from a tax standpoint as the same thing. Why do we care more about machines than we do about human beings? It's the incentives are all off. So I think there's things we can do uh, in the public sector. On the corporate side, you know, I think that there are things we all can do if, if we can. You know, I think as as employees. Um, if you are one of those, you know, job hopping millennials, and, and you can, you know, no, I think you, but I also think you can, even if you're moving around, you can take your, um, you know, your talents that are in demand to places that share your values, all the way down to how they treat people on the front lines. And I think more and more young workers are caring about this, and, and they're doing just that. And it's easier to figure that out and go to PayScale or Glassdoor or other online, you know platforms and actually figure out you know what what the pay is right down to sort of the lowest rung job um, as as consumers we can do the same thing we can we can check those databases we can try and shop if we have we're lucky enough to have choice and and actually go to merchants that share our, our values about how they treat their people and 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 I think the biggest leverage will come from the financial markets um, so as individual investors, we can invest in socially responsible funds that care about this and, and through uh, you know, different measurements can, can really get it. Is this company treating its workers, giving them a, a, a decent level of compensation? Are they training them? Is it a safe place to work? Um, we can invest our dollars in those. And then really institutional investors like you know, endowments and foundations and big pension funds they are starting to wake up and care more about this. And if, it, if anything's gonna pressure companies to, to do better, it's gonna be, I think, the leverage of the capital. Uh, switching gears 
a little bit um, to, to a little bit more sort of social commentary and getting in more detail about that. One of the things that I thought was most interesting about this book was that the four case studies were in totally different regions of the country. You had Detroit and Atlanta and Rochester and GE, and they were, I guess, nobody way out on the West Coast right. but at that time, you know, right. nobody went to West Coast. GE now, yeah. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, their corporate policies developed in parallel. There wasn't a distinction between small and large cities, and there wasn't a distinction between sort of urban versus rural, coastal versus not. Do you, like, what do you, how do you see those policies that's developing in parallel sort of being reflected in our society now? Is it, is it possible that we would get uh, companies that were high-tech companies on, you know, in San Francisco or New York that would have the same, you know, training and, and sort of discussions with its workforce in and, and much smaller places now? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I'll try and answer that. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the, the four companies and sort of what happened to them in terms of watching the social contract, good pay and benefits and training and all of it rise and then kind of fall apart, um, you know, over these sort of 30, 35 years and then 35, 40 years, is that, one, they were all really different. I mean, you had two that, that not only, you know, they were geographically dispersed, but in uh, GE and Coca-Cola have by and large done quite well over this entire 75 years. They've had their ups and downs, but they've been two leading big American companies. And you had two that ended up in bankruptcy in, in Kodak and General Motors and are now really shadows of themselves. But for their workers, it doesn't matter whether you're one of the winners or one of the losers. I mean, the story is exactly the same. You have, you know, your job security isn't as good. Your wages, if you're a frontline employee, have been pretty stagnant. Even a place like GE and its factories went to a two-tier wage structure and, you know, new employees rating lower pay. Um, and you've had very much eroding healthcare and retirement benefits. Um, so, you know, so, so that all, you know, that all changed. I, I don't know much, maybe these guys know more about sort of the week, whether there would be regional differences in, in, you know, what you need to do in terms of preparing workers. You know, all these companies pay somewhat different rates regionally because they had factories everywhere. And, and a lot of them, they ended up moving to the south so they could get non-union, they could pay non-union wage rates and they were much, and they were much lower. So companies are always sensitive to trying to move to a place that's the most cost effective and where they can find the talent that they that they need. It's always a blend of a blend of those things. I, I don't think that'll change much from, from my end. Yeah, Jessica, are you seeing companies that are uh, moving to places that are non-large metro areas and you know what do they do to attract workers there and Yeah, well so I heard Amazon is looking shopping around for their next new development center, so that's exciting. And I hear, you know, Pittsburgh, for example, Carnegie Mellon has seen a huge lift recently with autonomous cars and all the research that they've done there. I mean, I think still very much, if you're talking about tech, it's still very much Silicon Valley. Even New York, which is number two, which we're really bullish behind, we constantly have to justify why New York is number two, right? Which is crazy for all the New Yorkers here. But I think to your point, I think nowadays, you know, regardless of where you live, everything's online, right? Or the promise of it. Um, going back to the point earlier about training, um, I'm curious, who here has ever taken a web-based training? Yeah, and who's enjoyed that experience? It's just so <laughs> shitty, right? It's the worst. And yet, that technology has not fundamentally changed. It's all moved to MOOCs, right? Which, again, there's a whole segment of the population that does not have access to the high-speed internet to run these MOOCs, right? So, and I think about all the time that all of us spend on Instagram, <laughs> right? And there's a whole generation of people who consume content differently now, right? But no one's really thinking about this end user. I, I don't think, I haven't seen it, right? You think about Netflix and the personalization, how they know every single click you do, and yet we still haven't figured out this career path-based problem. Another good example I give is, um, when I used to you know, teach GED, I would have um, these graduates come to me and ask me, you know, when I'm going to college, what do you think I should study? And I would honestly, even working in tech, I would be like, like computer science, you know, nursing? Like I truly, even with all the wealth of data in front of me, could not actually advise my students on what pathway to take. And I think about all the technology many of you see now, the hedge funds and banks you use where if soybean prices go up by 15 cents, you know, you gotta buy, you gotta you know, sell. And I'm just, I'm just so fascinated by how that 
access to data is still not at all democratized in education and how we cannot predict um, with great certainty six years from now in New York City what is the job that is going to be the highest pay and most secure. Like, I couldn't tell you that. Right. I would guess data scientists, right? But even that is so nuanced. So, um, you know, to the extent that I, you know, can inject into this conversation, it's just like, what can we learn from technology and startups? Not all of it's good, clearly, as we've seen over the past few months, but there are things around scale, agility, um, and creativity that we can try. That's why it's, it's so much of what you shared is so exciting, too. One of the things that, that we see in looking at and talking to companies that are thinking about the future of work and trying to plan out their trajectories over the course of the next 20 years or so is that people, companies often report that there's a real dearth in soft skills more than anything else. Creativity, strategy, ability to, um, to sort of bring pieces together that, that aren't in the same um, sort of sphere in the first place and create value added from them, um, as well as just being able to speak and present information clearly to people above you and below you. And it's an interesting thing as we think about all of these tech skills to think about how to get people um, upskill on those things as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear a lot about the same thing. I mean, I, again, I just, I think about these two worlds now that, that sort of live side by side, you know, we. we manifested in our conversation on income inequality, right? We're really in this sort of just this, these side-by-side -side worlds. And, you know, so, so in, the, in the tech, you know, world, and, and definitely, you know, it's, it's awesome what you're doing and it is exciting. And, and I think tech can be a great accelerator for a lot of um, job matching and, you know, figuring out what skills are missing. You get, this, you get it online, perhaps, or at least access to it and fills in the missing piece and you can find the right job where it's really in demand because it's in real time, all that stuff. Uh, we were just doing some work at the Drucker Institute where we were doing some work in South Bend, Indiana, um, helping the city think through some lifelong learning ideas. And one of the big um, issues there is that there's just a huge part of the city, it's about 100,000 people, um, that just, as you say, doesn't have wireless, they, they, and they can't access any of this. So you can come up with all the cool portals and you know, do way better in terms of making it a better experience, but they, they can't access it anyway. And so they're grappling with just a basic digital divide in a city like that. Well, then what about, what about other kinds of divides? Like, if you think about the fact that 13 of the top 20 fastest growing jobs in the country right now are in the healthcare field in some way, you know, those are things that are person-to-person, human-to-human jobs, but that are generally associated with women mm -hmm. and with care for women. What, you know, are, are you seeing sort of men becoming more and more interested in those things as it's becoming clear that those are jobs that won't go away because of automation? Or how are how are all of those factors intersecting in, in your book? I'm not seeing that um, because the annual median income for a home care worker, for example, is $13,000 per year. So we lose some of our best caregivers, um, women and men, to fields like fast food. Like people who actually really want to do care work cannot feed their families during this work. There's something. There's a fundamental design flaw here <laughs> where, um, where the people that we're counting on to take care of us can't actually take care of their families during the work that they do. And it's gonna be, it is, home care work is the fastest growing occupation in our entire economy because of the growing older population as people live longer um, and epidemics and chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's, right, growing and through the roof. So we're, these are the, a, a large share of the jobs of the future, and I think a, a big part of the solution here is for all of us to figure out how we, in some ways, do what we did for manufacturing jobs in the 20s and 30s that used to be sweatshop, um, dangerous, low-wage jobs a lot of immigrant women did, right? And then they became pathways to economic security where one generation could do better than the next and you could take pride in them and they became a source of dignity and purpose. That is what we have to do for not just care jobs, but for so many low-wage jobs in our economy. Many of the low-wage jobs are currently gender female, right? It's, it's not an accident that 
two thirds of all minimum wage workers are women. And so we've really got to look at both how we raise wages for everyone and how we create gender equity. Um, and as we start to make these jobs better jobs, really figuring out how we're creating um, new ways for everyone to reclaim different kinds of work with dignity. And um, so, I mean, I do think that if we are successful in making these jobs good jobs, men will want to do them. And, um, and the reason why they've been devalued for so long is because they've been associated with women. So there's just like a lot to unpack there, and I can't actually predict what will happen. It'll be, I think, really uh, interesting to see. Of course, of course, one of the reasons those industrial jobs were good jobs, a huge reason, was and it became so through the 40s, was because they were unionized. And so now, right, and, and you know, this was, this was a really important thing, and, and I spent a lot of time talking about organized labor at the beginning, beginning of my book, because unions like the United Auto Workers and the electrical workers and the steel workers and so on, you know, was not only good, what the gains they wanted at the bargaining table were not only important for their members and those carrying a union card, but when the workforce, the American workforce, the private sector was 25 to 35% unionized, it's a lot of scholarship that shows there was a tremendous spillover effect to the, through the rest of the economy and it really helped lift up everybody and forge this social contract for everybody. Other companies had to pay and give the same benefits to keep up, others to keep unions out had to kind of match what was happening, white collar workers had their benefits patterned after what was won at the union bargaining table. So there was a tremendous lift across the economy. Now we're down to about 6% of the private sector workforce being unionized. And of course, you, the people you work with, because they were excluded from labor law, right, could never be organized, right? So that it's one reason they never made the same advance. So that's a big missing piece of the puzzle, too. Um, well, we'd love to have some time to uh, have audience questions and participation. So if anyone has a question, uh, um, one of the things that I think I felt it mentioned is the fact that there is a 17% currently, a 17% vacancy rate in the buildings and in the small mom and pop stores in New York City, which means all the people who would um, uh, employ uh, staff at these places are no longer working. And I see it, I'm a banker, and I see every block, two to three stores on every single block, empty, vacant, no one is hiring them even in my building, several apartments on my floor, empty and no one is taking the apartments because they're too expensive. And I think that concomitant with that is also the fact that immigrant labor coming in, illegals, do not help this situation because they will take the lower rank that has not been paid a lot, they will take the lower rank jobs and they will accept even less, driving the cost down. I think that's very important. And I think also the model for business, which we're all talking about, has changed the Amazonization has altered everything so that now many jobs don't exist but because of automation and because Amazon supplies things so that people look at a store, look at a dress, then say, okay, I'm gonna buy it on Amazon. They don't buy it in the store. This is so critical. And, and, and the vacancy rate is not incidental. I think that we, we have a whole new model to, to reconsider, to, to architect. Yeah, so, so the question was, what do we do about the fact that brick and mortar stores are going, um, are, are sort of, being reduced and are, are going out of business at an alarming rate, and what happens to those workers? Well, now the beautiful thing is Amazon's going back into brick and mortar, and <laughs> so it all worked out fine in the end. You know, it was our master plan to come full circle. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, it also we, we call that in America and some of our work a circular economy, where things come around again and that people are sort of rehabbing um, things that used to be brick and mortar shops into other things that create community vibrancy in some ways, coffee shops and so. Yeah, question of the day. Is the guaranteed basic income inevitable or desirable? <laughs> I hate to ask a question that kind of throws in the towel, but you know, around the edges of the election campaign, there were a couple of pieces. Charles Murray wrote one, and yeah. Michael Lynn from the American Foundation wrote one, which, if you, if I hate to reduce it to a soundbite, but it sounded like a nation of actors. You know, where people were going to be piecing together all sorts of benefits into, you know, including a earned income credit that was indistinguishable from the university basic income payment 
So I'd just like to get your assessment. Is that in the cards or is that going to go the same way that worker retraining you've heard about since 1981 right. and it's never been realized? I mean, what's, what, do you, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know, but do you want to, you want to talk about UBI and then I can talk about it too? <laughs> Is everyone going to yeah. <laughs> um, So what I like about UBI is that I think that it's at the right level of solution in that it's a big idea and we have a big challenge ahead of us. And I don't think it's going to get addressed through technocratic incremental solutions. I think we need big, bold ideas. Um, and so I think whenever you talk about a universal basic income, it creates the space for big ideas. And I think we need a lot of them. And so I, uh, I appreciate and actually believe that we need to be talking about solutions at that level. There are probably um, kind of four other ideas um, that I think more about than UBI um, because they are to me about investing in this question that we were talking about, which is making low-wage jobs that currently exist, that we know will exist, better jobs, and we know they're going to be needed in the millions. So I, I tend to talk more about those. One idea we talk a lot about is called universal family care. The idea that there should be one fund that we're all contributing to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us afford child care, elder care, and paid family leave. Basically everything you would need to take care of your families while you work. Um, and I would, you know, so I have like 10 of those <laughs> that I would add into the mix and I would say, you know what, we actually really need to debate and model and do demonstration projects and pilots to help us understand um, you know, what is going to actually meet the needs of our, of our working population in the future. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I think you're going to hear more and more about it. Um, I'm skeptical that it, that it will um, get too far. Um, uh, one, I think that uh, we were talking a little bit this, about this before. I, I think America's probably too inherently conservative, even if things get way worse. Um, I, I think there'll just be too many people who feel like, and I think the research shows this is not true, at least on the experiments that have been done so far in the, in the pilots and so on, but that it will make people lazy and, and that sort of runs against the grain of you know some American ideal. I, I don't think that's true, but I think too many people will, will perhaps believe that. Uh, the other things that I, I think about and I, I worry about is that one is that um, it's right one of those big ideas that is embraced by the kind of libertarian right and by the left. But I worry that the people on the right just want to get rid of every other social safety net and say, you just need this UBI thing, and that concerns me greatly. Um, I also wonder about the amount. So it's expensive, you know, even at less than $1,000 a month for everybody. You know, it's trillions of dollars. Um, and a thousand dollars a month, and one of the things that advocates say is, well, it really gives people choice. They can walk away from a bad employer. They can, you know, pick up and move to a new place. And I'm thinking, really, that's not very much money to really um, to give them that kind of leverage. So to give them that kind of leverage, I think it would get way beyond the realm expensive uh, to do. I have a hard time imagining that. That said, I agree. I think it's cool that we are starting maybe to think about some bigger ideas that may lead. And I'd love to know all ten of yours. Um, and and I, I, I think that's really good. And the last thing I'd say is the one thing that does interest me a lot about it, or something like it, one of the things that we know a lot about, and I'm sure your workers experience this all the time, is just the tremendous volatility in their, in their income from month to month. Um, it's been growing for a lot of working people. Their schedules get jerked around, or one thing happens, they have to take care of a family member, or something happens. And we know from the Fed data, right, there's that shocking thing, half of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. They either have to like not deal with it or borrow money to deal with it or you know, put it on a credit card, take on debt to deal with it. That's an incredibly shocking thing, I think. And, and so I like some way to just smooth out people's incomes, I think would be a helpful thing. But I don't know if UBI does it. Yeah. 
Yeah, but just to build on that briefly, we did a survey through the Chiefs Commission of what people want in a job, everybody across the board, um, in every demographic and every age group. And across the board, the number one thing that people wanted in a job was stability. It wasn't loving their colleagues, it wasn't pay, it wasn't, um, it wasn't anything else. It was knowing that they will be able to have a specific amount of income and count on that six months to a year. Which is an interesting thing, and I think that's what people are getting at in UBI, thinking about how do you how do you sort of address this emotional need to be able to forward plan, practical need to be able to forward plan in a way that works well with the emerging opportunities in sort of a tech-based economy. Um, and I, that's the real question of how do you give everyone in society a, the same stake and sense of investment in our our society and culture so that they can have this sense of stability in their work and what they're contributing to the community. Yes. No, um, I think we're talking a lot about what companies can do, but really the whole question about universal uh, health care. You know, when we look at one of the reasons our companies aren't competitive is because other companies in other countries don't have to pay for health care. Yeah. And when you talk about what's a quality job, if everybody had health care, we had a single payer system, we would be spending less. And that would be one issue that you'd be taking off the table in terms of quality of life. And I think it's extremely difficult with the system that we have now to go to that. And one of the things I think would be really worthwhile would be to study, looking at some states, how do we move there and actually make it work? Because it's pretty ABC in terms of even jobs leaving our, our country that we don't have healthcare provided by the government. And then I would also say, what about the whole question of Social Security? Could you have a better retirement program paid for through the government? Uh, so I think those kind of things, do we have the will to have companies say, we want government to provide this so we don't have to? So I mean, no, we don't, but I'm just saying, I, I don't think we should forget those ideas because they're right. We talked to a lot of people that had either gone into the entrepreneurial economy or um, had taken a risk and started their own sort of contracting business as a result of the healthcare law going into effect just because there was a baseline ability to get healthcare in any circumstances. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I see a question about like how small businesses fit into this, uh, into this sort of like matrix. Like I think we've talked a lot about like large corporates, and I'm wondering just as a group, do we think that they're doing better or worse at creating you know, good jobs at this level? And then do we think that people operating on that scale are you know, more able to influence how they're able to to create better jobs, or do we think less? Think so yeah, I mean, you have a VC perspective. I would say the macro perspective would be that um, most smaller employers have a lot harder time providing healthcare or retirement benefits for their people. They just, they don't have the scale and it's so hard to even, you know, when trying to access good rates in those markets, it, you just, it's harder to do. Um, and a lot, you know, because they're even maybe closer to employees, depending on how small they are, right? It's almost more family type situations, a lot of them, you know, feel terrible that they can't provide more, but but they but they struggle to do so. The other point worth noting is that you know small business formation in general is just on a decline um, in this country. So we, you know we think of it as and it is and you know you're you're an example of in some ways you know there's a lot of focus on entrepreneurship and, and it's and it's great, but the number of companies dying now is surpassing the number of companies being born uh, in the U.S. And so entrepreneurship has basically been on a pretty steady decline for like 30 years. Yeah, I'll just add, venture is really weird, right? I'll be the first one to say it. It's, and Kelton, you might know this as well, because you work in startups, it's like not a real universe in some ways. And so to that extent, I see the pros and the cons, and there are some small businesses that can become very successful with big businesses, but a part of venture that they will also, you know, die out. And so um, I think startups are just, again, an anomaly. I do, you know, want to believe that other small businesses that offer services and so forth can do well. I think I, I see a lot of what you've seen is anecdotally around healthcare, right? My own father is a lawyer, he has his own practice, and you know, he, he had a hard time being able to pay for health insurance for employees, right? And ironically, my father actually used to work at Kodak.
right? And also as a generation again. So I feel like it all comes full circle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on this. I mean, yeah, I think it's tougher for small businesses to provide a lot of the benefits because of just the way the market works around a lot of the benefits. But I think um, I've seen a lot of small businesses go the extra mile, and I think the relationship really matters. And um, if you're an employer who uh, really cares and gets um, how valuable the workforce is as a part of your your success as a company and really does, it's, a, it's all about choices and priorities, right? Just like our budget um, in this country. And um, and so I, I've seen small business owners do really awesome things that, um, you know, large business owners don't do um, to support their employees. And I, I guess I just wonder what it would take, like what kind of conversation we need to have to lift up those employees are those employers uh, make the models, support them more, um, and have them help lead the way? And there are big pockets, right? Trader Joe's, Costco, like there's an yeah. entire but universe. But they're big, but yeah. They're bigger now, yeah. 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 So, you know, one thing that's interesting in this and that would obviously help small businesses goes back to your point, right? Is if there were, you know, some kind of, some flavor of single payer government national health care. And it's so interesting. I mean, we, we have employer provided health care. 150 million Americans get their health insurance through an employer, so, something like that. And just for, you know, for context, I think, right, it's like 70 million or so get it through Medicaid, the program for the poor, 55 million or so get it through Medicare. Um, and, you know, just straight on the exchanges, not the Medicaid expansion, it's like, what, 11, 12 million on the ACA, right? So it's by and large, people get it through employers. And as you say, it's not only that employees are having to pay more and more out of their own pocket over, you know, the last 30 years, but it's a big burden to most employers. And yet, you know, when push comes to shove, every time we've seen different health reform efforts in Washington, there's often kind of interest at the beginning of whatever legislation is taking shape that they're gonna sort of move in that direction and sort of, yeah, it's a big burden to us, get it off our necks. And in the end, ideology, I, I can't think of another way to put it, and sort of reflexive anti-government ideology wins out, even though it is arguably and almost demonstrably in their self-interest to move in this other direction, they never push through with it. Okay, I don't think it's only because of ideology. I think it's because drug companies, insurance companies, and healthcare institutions lobby and give a lot of money to politicians. So that's another question. Yeah, that, 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 that is true. But even the other big employers then don't, they don't fight back. I want to go back to our uh, second question on the front row. Thanks. Well, my question is about really uh, goes back to the point of the unions and what, what do you give a specific example of one of those big four companies? What motivated them to break the social contract and how they were able to get away with it um, compared to, say, other places in the world which haven't been able to get away with it? Um, was it was it political? Was it because of decreasing demands from employees? Um, so what was it? What was the change that made the breaking of the social contract possible? Right. So I mean, if you look look at sort of the historical arc, um, you know, by the early '70s, you know, a sort of the, the U.S. economy by and large. Um, it really tanked. So we had this massive recession, right, the biggest one since the Great Depression. Um, and we actually had two kind of back-to-back -back recessions in the early 70s. The second one, 73, 74, was super deep. Um, you had wildly high inflation at the same time. Um, so it was this, you know, stagflation was the, the term of the day. Um, and so, and, and a lot of it, you know, big companies were just struggling to kind of survive through this, through this period. A lot of it, they had become uncompetitive as well. Uh, you know, the truth is, one, one of the worst things, and I can tell you this as a business consultant, right? One of the worst things that a company can happen to a company is success, um, because you know, you, you, too, too much, you, you tend to lose your edge a little bit, and you can. And, and U.S. companies, which again didn't have much global competition for sort of you know decades after World War II, suddenly we were getting you know leapfrog past in one industry after another: consumer electronics and autos and steel and you know on and on. And and so you know there was there was kind of a survival. There was you know we had a deep recession. There was a shedding of jobs. You had all this confluence of all these things sort of happening at once: globalization, automation. Um, 
the decline of unions, the shift to knowledge work, and this deep recession kind of all hitting in this perfect storm. Um, and, and then again, really what, what happened is I think the biggest shift, which, you know, in that moment as a corporate leader, you sort of have, you sort of have a choice. You can look and you can say, man, there's all these pressures on our workers. Like, what, what are we gonna do? And it goes back to this, I think a very a question about, that's a moral question. You know, do we, do we offer more support or do we actually squeeze down harder? And the incentives became because we shifted to this kind of model of maximizing shareholder value, um, you know, the, the, the push came to, to squeeze down, to squeeze down harder. Um, and then CEO compensation got tied to stock price, which, you know, just really uh, added to the, to the pressure to, to look at workers as, as an expense. And um, I mean, I, that is a very short form version of the story, but that's kind of what happened. All right, we have time for one more. We'll in the black guys, ladies and gentlemen. So that note, um, specifically, I joined by anyone on the panel, are there things that we can do to put people over profit? Uh, you mentioned good work, Good work code, which I'm excited to look into. Um, familiar with feed courts? Would yeah. be curious yeah. to hear about your thoughts on that. I've heard, you know, investors are um, kind of hesitant to identify as impact investors. Like, uh, how can we look for jobs? Invest in companies that are quote unquote good, which I, I don't invest in. Um, but you know, like, what what can we do individually and collectively, or your organizations or movements? Great question. Thank you for that. And I didn't plan. So definitely to help us build this movement for good work, and um, and I think it's partly about it's connected to the fight for fifteen, right? Raising wages. For workers, it's connected to all the different efforts where workers are in motion trying to make their jobs better um, and trying to bring dignity and respect to their work. So anytime you see a group of workers who've kind of stood up courageously and said, we deserve better, like it, it's time to organize the whole block to support them, basically. Um, and then this broader effort around promoting the code and helping us think about how we reach different kinds of companies, different kinds of employers with the same message of it's time for that moral courage and to take responsibility for creating good jobs for our workforce in this country. Um, we would love the volunteers and supporters um, from all walks of life to help us think that through. It's a great question because it, because it gets to the point of what we've been talking about tonight, that there's a broader set of things that go into the social contract today than maybe there were many years ago. That there's, in addition to individuals, corporate behavior, and, and city or federal policy that supports things, there's also the narrative in the media and reporters' job in bringing that to the, you know, like publicly, there are activists and advocates that are that are out there trying to set up good job codes. There are venture world um, and philanthropy world people that are thinking about how to incentivize investment in the right kinds of jobs. And so, all of the things need to work together in an ecosystem that starts to look like this. So, um, great wordsman, I do do it, Lynn. Thank you very much for. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.